0: have helped a lot. Alcohol being socially acceptable, you know, it distorts the perception of a lot of people as being less harmful than other drugs, when in reality, it is probably by far the most dangerous drug out there. It kills more people every year than all illicit drugs combined. Although, you know, with it being legal, a lot more people do it than heroin, meth, or other various illicit drugs. You know, as an education director at New Creation College, I get an opportunity to educate my students on pharmacology and physiological effects of drugs and alcohol. Now, drugs, aside from alcohol, cause the greatest damage in the central nervous system, where alcohol disrupts and destroys almost every single system that's within our body. In 2007, a documentary was released that has become one of the greatest videos that I have been able to find that follows an individual for 18 years, as we can physically see the deterioration that alcohol has caused on this man. So I'm so excited to have the filmmaker David Sperling on the show. His video is titled Drunk in Public, and it was the winner of the Boulder International Film Festival. Please stay tuned. I will see you in a minute. You are not going to want to miss this. Hey, thank you for joining me again on High Wall Clean. My name is Eric McCoy. You know, alcohol is unique as a drug because it easily crosses our blood-brain barrier due to its lipid solubility, but it also passes easily through every single organ and almost every single cell in our body because of its water solubility. What happens to our body over years of heavy drinking is one of the favorite classes I teach because I've realized how uninformed people are. You know, it's estimated that the average American drank 2.38 gallons of pure ethanol in 2019. Now, the problem with these types of numbers is that they determine this by dividing the entire amount of alcohol sold in the United States by the population. But not all people drink and not all drink their fair share, it's estimated that approximately 30% of Americans do not drink alcohol at all. And for those that do drink, it's estimated that 70% of drinkers only consume about 20% of all the alcohol consumed in the United States. Now, the leftover 30% consume 80%. And what's even more significant is that only one third of that 30%, which is only about 7% of the total population, drink 50% of all the alcohol that's consumed in the United States. And this leads to what we classify as the later secondary medical complications of chronic alcohol use. You know, statistically, these are male, and it's, also very evident in their physical appearance. You know, they're typically thin, they're hyperpigmented, they are uh, they have a weakened overall appearance, they're unsteady with a broad-based gait, which is actually known as ataxia, and many times bruised as alcohol destroys our platelets. They'll have a strong odor of alcohol, they'll have teeth missing, and a horrible breath as poor hygiene is very common. Their clothes will be saturated with urine or feces since our antidiuretic hormone within our penal gland is depressed, which causes us to urinate often. You know, their breasts may appear enlarged, testicles shrunken as alcohol will affect our endocrine or our hormonal system. The face can reveal dilated capillaries and acne-like lesions as well as an enlarged and bulbous nose. Palms can turn fiery red, known as liver palms, skin that looks like paper money, and deteriorated finger and toenails, maybe a swelling of the glands in their cheeks, whites of their eyes that can reveal small blood vessels with a corkscrew shape and a yellowish uh, jaundiced appearance. Now, these are just some of the things that you can see outwardly. But what is happening inside is even more horrific because of what is causing those outwardly signs. You know, alcohol is a poison and will affect every single system within our body. And it's these systems that are causing what you are seeing. Now, I haven't even accounted for, you know, organic brain disease, as some refer to as wet brain, uh, Wernicke's syndrome or Korsakoff psychosis. And I'm bringing this up because of my guest today, David Sperling. He created one of the best documentaries on the horrors of alcohol dependency. I use his film in the school that I teach at because it allows me to discuss the different systems of the body that are affected by alcohol, and then I can show my students through this visual aid what it actually looks like. Mark David Allen is that teacher with David Sperling as the director, and it chronicles the last 18 years of Mark's life. It was the winner of the Boulder International Film Festival. David, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. Sure. You ran the jail in Newport Beach, is that
1: correct? Yeah, I was started in uh, 92, and the way we were staffed then, we worked alone about, depending on which shift you're on, about 75% of your shift, then you worked with one other person, so we kind of had to do all the different tasks.
0: Now we spoke and i know i know you don't necessarily remember this but we spoke many years ago before the final cut of the film when mark was still alive sure. i remember asking you if there was anything that we could do to try and help him and I actually realized that you kind of ran out of ideas <laughs> <laughs> and you can definitely kind of see that in the video <laughs>
1: sure yeah and i i don't have you ever heard me speak on it Did you, when you, when I met you, with that after I spoke about it for like, did an actual presentation?
0: No, I haven't.
1: Okay. Cause I, I talk about when I did it, it was, it kind of explains it a little bit at the beginning. Um, but it wasn't, I didn't have any intent on making a film uh, or a video. And it was really just, I'd had some success showing people when they came into custody because I was working alone. It really was that a neat benefit. I could kind of gauge my time and do things that were a little outside of the box. Mm. You know, get someone a cup of coffee before they go have a friend pick them up instead of release them to the streets um but i often when i'd be there i would show them their mug shot and i would show them like their driver's license picture or their id card photo because we could pull that up and they often would be kind of like you know i thought i was in better condition i didn't realize I, I looked that bad And it was a jumping off point just to talk about things and maybe see if there's a different direction or whatever then video came along it was, it was suddenly somewhat affordable you know in 92 it was actually 94 um and i mark had been coming in and i finally started to figure out what was going on and i was like you know it's not working really you know at 93 arrests you're like we're gonna keep doing the same thing and they were sort of like you know um what do you want us to do? And I was coming from an education background because I didn't go into law enforcement. It was kind of just fell into it. Uh-huh. Um, and there's layoffs for um, teaching all throughout California at that point. So I just kind of did that for a little bit and then it turned into 28 years. Uh-huh. But uh, I thought, okay, I'll try something different. Um, you know, the mugshot thing was working with pictures, maybe video, because he we got along pretty good. He's obviously likes being on camera. <laughs> and I said, hey, Mark, what if I get a little bit of footage, show you, you know, maybe something will click. And he was on game, of course. And then he disappeared for five years. So, right. so that all started the thing. And then, and then I literally, after I got back from Hawaii, sold the domain name drunkenpublic.com. But well, I, I might be done with this. I'm not really sure. And then it was enough time where people started to come back in, write a letter, phone call. Hey, thanks so much for everything you did. And I was like, well, what did I do? Or what I, was there some magic thing I said? And they were like, they really, almost everyone kind of goes, ah, like they can't really pinpoint it. And then they come to the same conclusion of like, you know, it's just like, like you took the time. And it seemed at that moment, you kind of cared a little more about me than I did myself. You know, they went off and did all the work, but there was something about that experience of just taking the time. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to stick with it. Um, I'll just put in the time. I can't control the outcome. Um, You know, usually when you do, Good things, or when you try to do something good and you work hard at it and you're sincere, it, you may not get what you want, but usually something good comes from it.
2: Uh-huh.
1: And here you know I failed in my goal of, of getting him sober, but something like significance was bigger than success or failure. Something came out of it that was really significant. It ended up you know helping a lot of people, which I was not thinking of at all until about halfway through the process. Uh-huh. started to you know become clear.
0: Well, obviously, you know. I mean, you know, as you kind of learned, I mean, nobody can keep anybody sober.
1: Right. <laughs>
0: and uh, and you know, it's why I sent that message to you. That I mean, I you know, I look at you as you're like a hero, you know, because I mean, you went away above and beyond, you know, to help a person. And looking, you know, and it's so obvious in the video that you genuinely cared about Mark. And, you know.
1: Yeah. I thought it was going to take six months <laughs> and I was going to go in there and, you know, work whatever magic I thought I had. And then it was a real eye opener. I learned a lot. I had to realize, you know, my whole focus of control was really limited to you know, myself maybe in a few small things. Yeah. And it was, yeah. If someone would have told me, Hey, it's going to take 18 years and you're going to fail. You want to keep going forward. It, that would be an interesting crossroads. But you did far from failing though.
0: Because, you know, he, I mean, you know, sure, you know, he passed away. Sure. He, you know, didn't make it, but, you know, I look at it from all of the lives that you have impacted, you know, I mean, the, it's really, it's really funny. I was, um, I'd actually brought up in my, with my students yesterday that I was going to be doing this with you. And, you know, a lot of them and a couple of them were brand new and, but every single one of them have seen it. Wow. And so that video gets around.
1: <laughs> oh yeah. You know, I really don't sell very many copies, maybe one a day. It goes a little bit above one, a little bit below. Um, obviously, digital has, has really changed that too. But the number of times viewed, because it's not something someone buys and just puts on their shelf. They go, hey, you got to see this. and it, it, it passes around and it goes through treatment centers and colleges and prisons and the military. And yeah. I've had people overseas like... Um, I was, I worked at, um, Pacific coast recovery for like eight years, uh, part time when I was working in the jail and this girl was walking down the hallway that I didn't know anything. She was like, Oh, my sister, um, in I can't remember where it was that moment it was like Kuwait or somewhere like that. It's like 30, 30 kids are, are you know, they want to be sober for 30 days after watching this and started some little thing over there. And then I've had, you know, native American re- uh, reservations in Canada, you know, I get emails from, I've got. Email's like you can't believe. I mean, as far reaching a place. I know I never sold a copy or anything like that. So yeah. it's amazing. You're absolutely right. Travel's like, oh.
0: Yeah, you know, what's interesting too is, you know, when I show um, my students who are, they're all in recovery too. And, uh, and then also, you know, the clients that I work with, there's so, there's so many things within the video that they identify with. You know, and one of them being, I'm done. This is the last time. I'm not going to do this again. You know, every time Mark said that over and over and over. I'm not going to
2: continue to use alcohol. This will be your last time. Yes.
1: That's a guarantee.
0: We all believe... He meant it. He believed it, and I know he did. You know, I'm I'm somebody also that you know I've been arrested ten sure. times. I mean, drugs were my you know methamphetamine was my killer, <laughs> mm-hmm. but all of the times that I ended up in jail, you know, all of the times that I said, you know what, this is it. I'm done. I'm not doing. It. And I believed yeah, yeah. it. Yeah. You know, and then I'd walk out that door, and it all changed.
1: Sure. Um, yeah, you're you're right because I mean, even if you looked at his memory, how poor it was in that moment he's truly sincere and, and that's why it comes across so sincere when he says it. And people are like, and there's some people are not that familiar with the whole process might be like, man, he's, he, he's such a good liar. And I'm like, I don't think he's lying. He's not. Yeah.
0: No, he, and that was one thing that I saw I me mean, because, and, and as I kind of brought up in the beginning, like organic brain, brain disease, you know, the Korsakoff psychosis, mm-hmm. it was very evident, you know, I mean, you asked him what three times, how long have you been here?
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah, Four hours. You've been here 20 minutes. Really? Yeah. No. How long do you think you've been here? Today? Oh, several hours. I can agree with that. You've only been here for 20 minutes. Really? Okay. How long do you think you've... Been here today. How long have I been here, Dave? Probably about uh, four hours. Yeah, it's only been
0: 20 minutes. Yeah, you know, of course, psychosis results from damage to the areas of the brain that are important to memory and executive functions. And, you know, they're often associated with damage to the peripheral nerve tissue also. But this condition has severe memory loss and what's called cofabulation. And the sad part is that these individuals often need nursing homes or custodial care. And sadly, they are less likely to improve significantly.
1: Yeah. That's why to me it was such a shocker. We came out of county jail toward the end, was it 2010? He's telling you the date, this, that, how many days till Christmas? I mean, yeah. that was i don't know how to explain that because that was a day and night thing and he'd been in custody obviously many times for good lengths at one time really you know almost a year pretty much so yeah it's but you're, you're talking about how um in the class people believe that he was sincere yeah. um that's fascinating that it, that's sort of everybody sort of i, I think the most um kind of to sum up a single statement about the film, when people say, when you said people identify with it, I was always concerned. And when I uh, Pacific coast recovery, that sort of the, the real housewife crowd, like women in their forties to fifties that, you know, have a pretty comfortable living and stuff like that. And they go to rehab would be like, he'd be too out of touch for them because, you know, he lived on the streets and all that. That is probably the group that I would say is most impacted. Huh. And it's because he transcends his, you know, his his appearance and his situation because it's it's almost like a soulful representation of what's going on Mm -hmm. and i had a guy tell me you know my mom took me to the morgue and you know i did went to jail and i've been to meetings and read all the books and this guy's done everything and he goes i saw your film and it was like mark put all that stuff in the form of a person Mm -hmm. and and that's when it finally spoke to me yeah i'm like that's pretty that i guess that makes sense you know
0: Yeah, it's, it's quite a, it's quite a great video because it is, it's highly relatable to so many people and, and not just the alcoholics, you know, even the people that abuse drugs and things like that, because the dependency is the same, you know, whether you're talking about alcohol, heroin, meth, you Mm -hmm. know, Coke, Mm -hmm. any of that, the, the dependency part of it is all the same.
1: Yeah.
0: And, um, you know, the, the consequences, physical consequences are different. Sure. Um, You know, alcohol. Alcohol again. I mean, creates. You know, when you look at, you know, heroin creates very little tissue damage compared to alcohol creates an enormous amount of tissue damage. You know, the most impact that you know other drugs, with the exception of alcohol, has is the central nervous system, brain, and spinal cord. Where again, alcohol affects the entire body. Yeah. And being socially acceptable. (laughs) Yeah,
1: Yeah. And you know, in custody environments, it's the most violent person. Yeah. By far, um, and it is the people that we see that are the most degraded unless it's real end stage, you know, um, drug use mm-hmm. uh, where they're really deteriorated. And that's more or less from not necessarily the drug, but, you know, the environment that where they're at. Right. Lack of self-care. Yeah. Um, malnutrition and yeah. stuff like that. Um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty dramatic. I mean, it, it does... You know, being socially acceptable, and if anyone's ever in the safety cell, unless it's a mental health thing combined with, with uh, maybe a, too much medication or lack of medication, um, it's an out, it's alcohol. People be like, "Oh, what's that guy on? He's he's acting crazy," and I'm like, "He's just wrong." <laughs> right. I mean, everyone's different. You have your you know people, and that's the thing that is so distinct too that people can take drugs and actually be pretty functional. And it's, I mean, again, everyone's different but they're how they can present is a little more, I would say, dialed in. Whereas someone that drinks, if they're an alcoholic, sometimes you see a distinct personality change. Yeah. <clears throat> it's like, whoa.
0: Absolutely. I wanted to ask you too on that from a, you know, from a, because one of the things that I'm, uh, one of the purposes for what I do is to fight the stigma of, against substance abuse, uh, mental health also. Mm-hmm. And, you know, from a police officer's uh, perspective, right. And again, I've been arrested about 10 times in my life, four of them before I turned 18. But uh, for all the adult arrests, you know, uh, drugs were and possession charges were a part of it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we can obviously look at drunken public, you know, being, you know, technically a minor offense right. in general. Um <clears throat> or even the possession of alcohol in public, right. You're not allowed to drink, obviously walking down the street, which I saw him doing Hawaii (laughs) and uh, the, you know, but with the stigma of drug use and now it's changed a little bit because, you know, obviously in California possessions are now misdemeanors, but back when they were felonies, you know, how different did the police officers treat the drug offenders versus the alcohol?
1: As far as treated them, or, or viewed it i think they viewed it as more serious they, uh-huh. they viewed it as um more destructive because you know they do see um families torn apart by it i mean they see the same thing with alcohol and, uh-huh. and in that case when they could see how people have been victimized um they would have stronger feelings uh-huh. but i think in the drug environment it's a little more black and white uh-huh. um you know here you have a you know a family where their husbands of domestic violence but the for all intents and purposes, it looks like a regular home right. um, where you, you know, if you're busting someone for drugs and stuff like that, typically it's something a little more run down, a little more crime sort of feel, that, you know, all that stuff. So I think their view gets a little shaded by that. Um, but as far as the individual person, only from the standpoint of, hey, when you sell or you have this stuff or you give it to your girlfriend, you know, it's it's not cool to do that. Mm -hmm. that bothered them. Um, but comparing that to someone arrested for drunk in public or, you know, possessing alcohol, um, that was more like, I mean, Newport beach was, you know, I think there were more drinking establishments per capita, if you include the hotels, restaurants, bars, and a lot of people go to the beach. And so drinking was a big part of it. You know, everyone goes to the beach. So, um, I think the view shifted to that's a little more like you just drank too much. you you got a little you celebrated a little too much where drugs don't have that viewpoint you know
0: because any at all is illegal (laughs) sure
1: yeah and there's a there and i I guess there is like a you know i I ran to a lot of young officers where it's like oh that's just bad it's it's like somehow the education process of them growing up it's just there was a little bit of an evilness to it somehow you know you movies and this and that and the, the glamorization of drug dealers and that whole thing and it, the, the intensity and stuff i think it really kind of seals it but like you said things are changing a little bit i, I was I, I knew it was something when it was like probably four years ago and i know it had kicked in before that um i saw a couple it looked like they were high school students in newport beach walking across the crosswalk and they were talking about doing heroin and it's like you wouldn't have heard people talking about that necessarily out loud especially young people especially people the social acceptance of that has really been fascinating.
0: Yeah. Things are changing. Yeah. Definitely changing. I want to take a step back real quick. I was always curious on this. You kind of mentioned a little bit in the beginning, but with, with Mark, um, what, what was it that really intrigued you about him? What was the reason that you sort of, like saw him and said, you know what? I want to do something to help this guy. Like how many times had he been arrested before you started this? Um,
1: it was, there's of list numbers, but officially, and I always went conservative with all my numbers. I didn't try to inflate anything. Um, that took care of itself. Um, it was 93, if I remember, when I kind of just sort of put it all together. Because I started in 92, you know, I had various trainings and things like that. So I wasn't always there. Um, and in 94, it was probably like maybe 93. I started to, who is this guy keeps coming in? And, oh, that's Mark and da 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 da. Apparently he was, he was a little more grumpy when he would get arrested prior to me meeting him. Um, it was a little more kind of a fight taken out of him, I guess. Um, but we kind of sort of hit it off and, you know, I, I was viewed working in that environment as treating people like I like to be treated. And so I didn't try to, you know, overcomplicate it or you, judging judgment didn't do any good and so it was it was i i saw more people make positive changes or just have a better experience if you want to call it that get more out of the experience cuz why go to jail get nothing out of it except a bad time even if you can have fun but you get something out of it what's wrong with that it's the, the whole purpose is not to be coming back here you know um i'll get another job if they stop stop arresting people was how i looked at it um right. but we kind of just sort of hit it off and then would always be very sincere about you know saying he wanted to stop and you know he's convincing and i'm like no that this would be kind of cool and literally i was coming from an education background i wasn't about necessarily enforcement i was about i was solution oriented and i'm like this isn't working doing it this way you know there's it's clearly not working 93 times what what's the magic number where you go hey it didn't work (laughs) so (laughs) i mean i i figured you know that was sort of the thing about want to try it but why him because it's funny because i've had a lot of positive experiences where i have invested some time energy in people and they did get clean i just didn't happen to make a video about it right um and i think uh a little bit was i i have some stubbornness um and i like a challenge um and then, you know, if you're going to climb a mountain, might as well be Everest. And I didn't realize it was Everest times 10 when I started, <laughs> but I thought this is, this would be really cool. I, I like, um, transformation and I like people, the underdog when people are just really, and they do something that just kind of shocks the world. I, I that is, that is like kind of a, one of the elements of life that I find really rewarding when I see mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. So. And I think a lot of people can relate to that too, you know, in sports, the big comeback stuff like that is pretty neat.
0: Um, yeah. And that's the reward, the reward that, you know, I get in what I do mm You know, is to be able to see that transformation, to see people, you know, way down here and to be able to, Oh, so I used to work at, um, Newport coast recovery. Okay. Um, I actually was a counselor there. Then I was uh, actually the director right towards the end of it closing. Um, so, when was that? What t- what years were you there? So, this was 2005 to 2009. So, you know, with alcohol, alcohol um, is one of the two generalized concepts of withdrawal being able to kill you, right? Sedative hypnotics and then alcohol yeah. withdrawal are the two um, yeah. classifications of, dr- of withdrawal killing you, right? Did you guys do how did you deal with that at the jail? I mean, I did, was there. Always medical.
1: That's not necessarily widely known, you know, because you hear about you know heroin withdrawal. it seemed to be the 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 group that is the most vocal about withdrawal, um,
0: but it doesn't kill you, right? <laughs>
1: exactly, but it's it's almost like anxiety. You feel like you're going to die,
0: yeah. but
1: you're not going to die, and you so, you want it. You want to die, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, whereas we'd be like, hey, this guy's you know. He says he's got withdrawals and stuff, and, they, and sometimes you know the feedback we'd get as jailers would be like, um, "We'll keep an eye on him." And I'm like, "You, you know, he might have a seizure." But you, you try to like educate them, and over time it got way better. In the beginning, it was kind of like, you know, forget about it. You know, he shouldn't have got arrested that kind of thing. But by the time I was out of there, you know, the department really did evolve and sort of like, okay, well, um, you know, we'll try to get someone in there to get him to the hospital. Or if it was someone that's, that's, you know, was maybe not in 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 an acute type situation, you know, someone come pick them up and then they could go to the hospital on their own. I mean, it was kind of dependent on the case by case basis, but we weren't allowed to give out any medication. And that was frustrating because a lot of times they'd have it with their name on it in their possession. And it was like their policy was no medication because you can never know what's in it and all that kind of stuff. And they're just it's a it's fairly common at the city jail level that you can't do that. Um, now with Mark, he was the type of person that wouldn't show any like prior signs and wouldn't even be aware enough to know that he was not feeling that great other than just wanting to go drink. So at six hours on the button, that guy would go down. And so we're always like, we got to get him out of here. And they're like, you know, he he was, you know, and from an officer standpoint, if you don't really know him, it's kind of hard to tell when he's sober and stuff because of the way he talks, the things he says for me, you could tell his balance got better when he got sober, and um, he might say the same sort of wacky stuff, but he wasn't slurring as much.
2: Uh-huh.
1: Um, but he he needed to go out and drink or take medication. If he had his medication with him, I would stand with him outside the jail to talk to him about taking it, and you know, 99% of the time he was compliant to that and wanted to and would take it. He kept having a seizure in the street when he's, you know, who knows what sort of cascading effect that has you know he falls into the gutter someone swerves at someone else i mean so um how many times
0: how many times would you say he had went into
1: seizures at the jail he got um well for him initially part of my getting there i have no idea but when i got there i would say probably five or six times and i was there for like half of them um but we Learned pretty quickly and because he was so prolific in coming in and, um, you know, in them having to deal with that and the medics coming and all that stuff. Um, sort of the supervisors have sort of figured out, OK, well, every time he gets arrested now, we'll have him taken by the hospital first and get him medically cleared, uh-huh. which is an interesting thing is no officer wants to sit with him, you know, at the hospital for four hours. And so a lot of people think that officers would go would pick on them and they and they'd look for them and they'd get a you know free arrest out of them. It was the opposite. Yeah, they would see him and do this because they know they're going to be sitting at the hospital. Yeah. So it was kind of funny how people make that assumption, but it's like a complete one eighty of that. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was pretty fascinating. All, all the you know the little ins and outs of it all. Um, you know, that's what's interesting too is that I. I got an email from a nurse at Hogue once that had dealt with him a number of times and was really tired of it. And she had other patients to deal with and was like, why doesn't this guy you know, kind of get his act together? And, you know, he's he could be rude sometimes. It just really had a hard time with him. And she saw the film and she was like, you know what? It sort of brought me back to the reason why I got into nursing. And it just sort of like revitalized her career it was really neat to see something like that. And I've had quite a few emails like that, whether it's a therapist that's like, you know, sort of burned out and this sort of just jump-started something in me. I mean, things things I never thought of how it would affect things. You know, It's, it's pretty, for someone that at the end is dead because of the choices they're making and the whole point of the film is to try to get them to not make that choice, for it to have that kind of impact is pretty remarkable.
0: Yeah. He's the, he's the true picture of dependency. I mean, it's the, you know, I mean, obviously he kind of, you know, eventually reached a place to where, you know, obviously he wasn't even thinking very well and probably Mm. not understanding a lot of what's going on, but you know, he, I mean, he obviously knew the risks and dangers of alcohol, but you know, that stuff doesn't seem important, you know, when you're in that dependence. And, um, you know, it's so crazy because everybody that they just love Mark. Everybody loves Mark. they are like, I just love the guy, you know?
1: <laughs> yeah, he's got that like, there's something about like sad eyes almost. There's some something that sort of pulls you in that, you know, and, and from people over the years I've met that I've talked to or that have sent me an email or something like that, um, that knew him before when like it is kind of like high school years. Um, he was pretty bad then a lot of people think that the accident was the main thing that you know made him the car accident uh have all his issues and they all the people that knew him all told me no he's, he was really drinking hard pretty consistently all through his you know teenage years yeah. like I, i've even seen like a one of those photographs one of those like humiliation photos where you're at a party and you're hammered and passed down people are like you know putting shaving cream and lots of all you just and it's it, he just looks horrible mm-hmm. and Um, he's clearly in high school and so these people were like the guy was like the king of the beach he was like girls really liked him he's a great surfer very charismatic you know and and they would all party with him but they kind of you know the time came where they went this way and he didn't he just kept going this way
0: yeah
1: and you know that was so so
0: he really was a good surfer
1: that's what every i haven't heard of one thing you know that contradicts that Wow. from multiple people. So I know that scene on the beach where he's talking about, surf, that was the thing is his timelines of things were so fascinating yeah. when you talk to him, you know?
0: Yeah. It was almost uh kind of that dementia. Mm-hmm. Like it kind of brings you back. Like you're, you know, in, yeah. in different. I'm, I'm not remember like, you know, take me home, even though I'm home, but you know, yeah. you're thinking like you're, 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 uh, you know, high school home.
1: <laughs> yeah. My wife's uh, mother had, late stages alzheimer's for like a really long period of time during that time so there'd be many times when i'd leave work and maybe go over to their house and they were very similar
2: yeah
1: that confabulation where you sort of make up phrases and things to kind of try to trick everyone to think you know what you're talking about but yeah. you really don't like oh yeah i'm just hanging in there bro like he would just say that for things that really didn't make sense most of the time Yeah, and he could kind of disarm you if you didn't like pay attention and you know spend enough time with him those words he would use Oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) i used to call him the white don king because he'd just make these words up like you know you seem like a very 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 sophisticated human being in my ecological jurisdiction there yes (laughs) so funny illogical jurisdiction yeah there you go (laughs) sounds like a punk rock band or something you know (laughs)
0: yeah he said that so many times
1: Uh (laughs) he he shifted it toward the end you know i have some edited versions of it that i kind of forget what's kept in what's kept out but i think i might have even made a comment about it i don't know if it's still in there but he shifted it to ecological jurisdiction when everybody was going green you know it was like he's keeping up with the times (laughs) (laughs) yeah he was pretty funny yeah
0: for those that don't know, uh, confabulation is a hallmark of Korsakoff psychosis. You know, these, these are people that make up stories. They talk fluently without facts. They're usually alert they're responsive and, and, and able to comprehend. Now, memory impairment is out of proportion to other cognitive dysfunctions, But because of the severe damage to areas of the brain that are crucial to memory, the person can't process and store new information. So in order to fill in the memory gaps, they make up stories. And these aren't lies because it would require more memory and intent than someone with Korsakoff psychosis could actually muster. You know, memory for things that happened both recently and a long time ago is variably and usually severely impaired and his grandma on the video was pretty neat
1: yeah yeah she you could tell she was tortured by the fact that feeling pretty helpless and trying to you know do something that worked
0: yeah yeah and those conversations obviously at the end uh with her too were yeah they kind of repeated themselves like exactly <laughs> so she kind of had did she kind of have some like dementia
1: type and she was in a like senior living um because i'd go visit her there and um when I'm trying to think when and actually the the video that's in the film is from her home but then later on toward um around the time when he was having those phone conversations she was in senior a senior living place and she she lived I know that she lived into her 90s. She was actually much older than she looked. Um, She lived into her 90s. Mark's mom was, I I believe, in her, like, 70s, and Mark was 50. And they all died within, like, a year, maybe. Oh, wow. So, and, and, you know, she did look like him a little bit, like, in the shape of her face and stuff. So, I mean, his genetics were were pretty strong. He probably would have been, you know, if he had lived a healthy lifestyle, been pretty good, because the damage he put himself through into... I mean, of course, he died, but he wasn't so bad in terms of, you know, the medical paperwork.
0: And, they, and ironically enough, you do see this in quite a few people, the, the very, very, very severe alcoholics. I mean, the ones that are drinking like he does. And there's a secondary pathway for um, ethanol metabolism. So chronic alcohol consumption increases and it's what is called the cytochrome P450, which is an enzyme, which actually helps save the liver. Wow. Um, and, uh, but, you know, uh, I guarantee, you know, his heart, I mean, obviously they d- kind of diagnosed him as it was heart failure, right. Yeah. In a form of heart failure, um, you know, enlarged hearts, you know, your, you know, uh, pancreas, I mean, all, all your organs, yeah. uh, you know, are, are being just beat,
1: beat yeah. down. Yeah. And he, you know, we, but the, the guy just lay in the sun and just bake and we're like this guy's not i know he's not eating his antioxidants but he's not got skin cancer you know i mean just yeah. he's you know hit by a car and you know, the whole drowning thing and then all the seizures and choking and
0: yeah he, he's been through a lot he, he was i mean he was a fighter
1: yeah he didn't really look at coming to jail as a chance to like get something to eat or place right. to lie down he always stayed in the state of like when am i leaving right um so he never didn't really take advantage of some of the things that really could have, you know, maybe turned the corner for him or, or prolonged, you know, being sober enough to maybe think a little more clearly. And I mean, he was always just right back. Yeah. Fascinating how he just.
0: Well, and that's the other issue is that he doesn't eat. You know, so serious malnutrition, which that affects you know your all your different systems as well. Um, and so um because that was obviously very evident he hardly ate at all
1: yeah he'd go through little bits and pieces and everyone would buy him food um and he could tell that he would there were times when he would he would want to eat but he didn't it's not like he asked for food all the time it just happened every once in a while and then sometimes he'd throw up um you know was, but i know in hawaii um the officer was telling me you know the day before he goes he i go I was asking, like, what do people think about him? Um, and a little, little snippet that's in the film where he says, you know, people be, like, oh, all alarmed. He's like, oh, yeah, that's Mark. You know, kind of like they they, they knew him. But he'd be eating, a, like, a sandwich out of the trash that you, from 20 feet away you could see is, like, blue with mold. Ugh. Just be eating it and then throwing up and then keeping eating it. Huh. And, and that was some of that kind of stuff was the angle I tried to go for. And I, I don't think it's covered too much of the film in terms of, you know, if I could, if I could get him 5150, like six times in six months, you know, I was getting told that they could probably change the direction in terms of maybe how to handle the case and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but you needed an officer willing to take them through that process. It was kind of hard to talk to management and get them to commit to having an officer that could do that when they wanted people in the field and so forth. Right. My argument being, if you take care of this issue, then you can have more people in the field, maybe a little more dedication now than later on, you know, right. whatever. Um, but, you know, there, everyone was like, oh, he's not suicidal, he's not this and that. And I'm like, yeah, but he's a danger to himself. And when I watch him at nighttime and he doesn't even know I'm watching, he's walking across the street without ever looking he just walks across the street mm-hmm. for, you know, the eating of stuff from the trash that he's clearly getting sick when he's doing it and the constantly falling down. I mean, it seemed like for me, it was a case for being gravely disabled. Yeah. The problem being, he kind of sobers up when they evaluate him. He can walk, talk, feed himself. He's charming. He talks about how he's not going to drink again. He's got a home. <laughs> yeah, Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, and if you, don't, if you don't really look into it, like I showed in the film, it's like, that was so frustrating. The guy in the bed next to Mark is screaming and trying to light himself on fire and they, with limited resources, who are they going to hold, you know? Right. So it's like, it really was, he was just enough to slip through the cracks that way.
0: Yeah, and I think that shows a failure in the system. Sure. You know, I mean, even, you know, even the part where you were, you know, when you'd gotten him into that one place and that place was supposed to pick him up and he ended up on a bus. And I, I mean that to me that again, like there was some failures with him there somewhere.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And that only worked out with me finding it because I was getting calls from some people behind the scenes that were sort of helping out that were actually at the County level told do nothing for this guy. He's going to suck you dry. Like he's going to just wear you out. You're not going to get anywhere, that kind of stuff. And it was sort of like a, Hey, I just got to tell you, this is kind of how they view it, but I'll do what I can. And it was, was, you know, their help was invaluable. Mm -hmm. Um, The other thing being some people, the county would tell, would say things like they don't want to admit there's a homeless problem, you know, property values, all this stuff. This is like probably 2005, somewhere around there, maybe, you know, obviously it became pretty obvious there was a homeless problem in time, but. Uh, back then it was sort of like around the edge of that and they just were like they're not going to do anything extra la county would be happy to say they have a homeless problem because they'll take all the resources they can get but here no we're still orange county mm-hmm. so that was kind of frustrating and I, and this was right after me screening the film for a bunch of people that worked in adult protective services mm. and then it was like they came up and was like hey, you know i mean it was so it was kind of neat that they felt comfortable enough to, to share that kind of stuff when they were everyone w- was trying to help but something you know you hit these roadblocks yeah
0: I mean, it was cool you found them too <laughs> i know
1: that was i just you know i had a good about that period of time because he was so clear-headed when he got out of county that i'm like just i can't let something you know just dumb get in the way of this finally getting some momentum you know he's finally saying he wants to go somewhere and he's doing it enough where he's not like just changing his mind on me like he always would if he did say yes he changed his mind two minutes later you know
0: yeah and the changes that you saw in that too were very cool you know like when he was working in that warehouse you know yeah i mean he just looked completely different you know
1: (laughs) he's got the glass great i mean everybody i remember
0: everybody sees it like man he looks great you know yeah and and so at the end of his life, now I remember you were. It was kind of mentioned in there that um, he obviously died sober. Yeah, that's what. I mean. He didn't have any alcohol in his system, and he was what he was at the beach. You said right, we're yeah. uh, talking to some police officers too, right?
1: Yeah, it was prior. That was like I think an hour, or two, uh, maybe even four hours, something like that. They said earlier in the night. It was, it was kind of like the information I got, um, and they. They said he appeared sober. He was singing them him some songs and stuff. And then he was found hours later, like 43rd, 44th Street or something like that, right around there at, at Seashore Drive. Um, just kind of slumped over. Yeah. And uh, they, everyone I talked to that was involved in the process said they didn't believe there was any sort of withdrawal situation. There's no like he didn't fall and hit his head. There was nothing like that. It was just kind of as the report said. This is heart stopped, huh?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, and you literally do watch that video, and you think, you know, what? It's amazing he lived as long as he even
1: did. Earlier yeah. versions where it's going this way, it was really cool when I put that he is still alive at the end. The gasps from the people watching that, whenever I'd show it to a live group were so predictable because you just knew they're all thinking this guy's gonna be dead there's no how can you live like this and not be dead and when he's alive it was like it it was really powerful too because it was like people would say you you know i'm not that bad so there's hope for me right like they kind of looked at it as like so when he did die i was like is it gonna lose its power and it didn't
2: because at all
1: yeah and i think it was it was partly because you kind of thought he was gonna die so when he did you know you, you you could accept that and then the rest of it just kind of works so yeah yeah no but i was, didn't
0: lose his power i th- I honestly tell you the truth i think it made it a little more
1: powerful because it's like more real like you're not you don't have right. because people would also say hey he's pretty he's way worse than me and he's still alive so i got a little time left right to, to not change
2: yep
1: so that was there's always kind of like it's not what I wanted
0: you to get out of this. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's a, he's definitely, you know, one of the, one of the most severe of cases that you see. I mean, he did an amazing job. He really did. Um, the, 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 the reality behind it with people that drink that severe for that period of time, the story usually doesn't end well, mm-hmm. you know, but I, I think you definitely had a big impact in giving him more years than he probably would have had.
1: Well, it's a testimony to treatment, too, because at the end, when he does go, even though he only goes for a couple of weeks, he came back. He got arrested less. He was more of a person and not just blown out on the streets all the time. There are people talking to him. There's, you know, I talked to a number of different rehab groups that go to the beach and they kind of look for him and talk to him because they'd seen the video. So he was getting a lot of social interaction The people that, you know, kind of, you know. He was famous. Right. (laughs) <laughs> and, and so that feedback he was getting, um, it, it did sort of change the way he lived for a little bit. I mean, he still had the issues and all that stuff, but it was like, man, you could see something changed. You know, you didn't get better, but something changed. Mm-hmm. And that was a, a tiny amount of time for someone that had been doing that for, you know, 30 plus years.
2: Yeah.
1: My relationship with my mother over this thing was kind of strange. She was a superstar substance abuse counselor like had celebrity clients, um, really, and she was a genius. She, she had a photographic memory, would, could read these you know, textbooks and five, or six hours later have most of it like just on recall. Um, graduated high school 16, nursing school 18, became a big, ran all the outpatient at UCI Medical Center, had multiple jobs, but had some pretty strong mental illness, mental illness and some addiction issues as well. Mm. Um, they were always active. And, but she was very generous with me in terms, I was an only adopted child. So I don't, I'm not, I don't have any of her genetic uh, stuff, good or bad. Um, but she would share with me um, all kinds of stuff about what works, what doesn't. And I asked her, I'm like, okay, hey, I got this guy who's, who's so, you know, far gone. What can you, what can you do? And she, she said, really, the only thing you could do is, you know, if there's some merit to your relationship, that's sort of an access point of that could spark something. Mm-hmm. It could push him in some direction. But other than that, even with her and she had worked, you know, in downtown LA, started out in public health. That was the beginning of her career and um, child protective services. She was pretty well-versed in, in dealing with people that were really, you know, living a pretty rough existence.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, the, the, the ambivalence is, is powerful with, with substance abuse, you know? And, you know, you could really see that too. I mean, like, you know, that time where they lost him, showed up, you found him. He was so excited to see, you You know, he was so excited to see you, which, which showed that, you know, at that point in time, like he was on that side of like, okay, I want to do something. I want to change. I want to be healthier. I want to live right. You know? Yeah. But that ambivalence that we all go through, you know, I mean, I've got years clean and sober and I still have that. And, you know, I think sometimes like, I'm sure I could use a, use, use a good shot of meth, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, you know, but, that's the power that, that kind of falls within this. So we have to always stay in line. The problem with Mark is, is, you know, his mind wasn't all there. And so, you know, he does, he didn't quite have the, the true power, you know, that some of us are able to grasp when we are able to maintain some of our brain cells, Right. <laughs>
1: you know, I, I really felt for him in that moment too, because I'm thinking, trying to look at it from his point of view, and I don't know how much he could comprehend with thinking the the one time he really is since takes a couple steps into wanting to get to take the help that people are offering him and they, they don't show up. They leave him hanging and dry. And I'm just like, I mean, I was like, there's no way this can't be really happening, you know? And so, so crazy. I know. I know. I mean, you know, like I said in the beginning, thinking that it would take that long and have so many ups and downs and You know, because a lot of people, you know, there's a a structure to the film where it is very repetitive. And part of that is it was reality. But part of that is I wanted people to feel that redundancy and and kind of almost wear you down a little bit because Mm -hmm. that's what the process took. Because I was also working full-time graveyards, full-time plus, and had a family, all this stuff, and trying to do this at the same time, you know, you know the I asked once, um, to bring the camera to the jail, I had to ask, get permission, and write up a proposal. Right. They never got back to me, so I just went ahead and did it. And what I did was I showed them that the film was only up until where he disappeared and went, and you know, later I found him in Hawaii, but it ends with you know, not knowing where he went. It was only 16 minutes long. Uh-huh. I showed them that, and they were like. Okay, it seems all right. You know that's fine. I'm like, you know, you guys never got back to me, so I just figured I would do it. You know, not do anything with it. So it really, they thought I was done with it at that point, and I didn't know any different either. But so when I continued to do it, I had to be a little bit clandestine when I did it, and that's why some of the shots are weird. And because I'd have the camera shoved in my belt here, and I didn't want to make a scene out of it or doing that. And at the same time. The department was supportive and they did, you know, try to treat him the best they could, but I got a lot of grief. Why are you wasting your time with this guy? Right. And then ironically enough, my mom who was initially supportive turned on me. She's had issues with image and how people perceived you and all that stuff. Right. And that was always our battle. And she turned her back on me. Right. I didn't talk to my mom for six years. She said I was wasting my time with this bum. And she had all this really harsh stuff to say, which was, Wow. She was a borderline personality disorder. So she really, one moment was, I hate you. Next moment, don't leave me, you know? Yeah. So but that, was that permanently affected the rest of my life, you know, cut out of the will, this, that, everything. And so wow. it was just so interesting that her ambivalence just shifted dramatically too on that. It was like, wow, I didn't see that one coming. Although I didn't expect a whole lot either just based on our, you know, rocky existence, but but be that being the reason that she verbalized was odd, wow, yeah,
0: and her working in the field,
1: right it was, it was I don't know, I mean it it could have just been her substance use, um her mental illness, and then whatever health issues she had when she died at the end, it just kind of maybe that was the initial starting point or something, but uh-huh. um.
0: I mean, you know, and that's the way I see it is that, you know, is there always hope for someone? Sure. You know, unless they're buried in a box, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, I, I, I truly believe that. And, and, you know, because sure. I mean, I find that times I'll work with people, they relapse, they come back, they relapse, they come back. I mean, it's a, I was that way, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, I wasn't somebody that got it the first time or the second time or the third time or the, you know, isn't like an average of
1: seven times or something like that, as far as, you know, going into a program.
0: Yeah,
1: absolutely. The average.
0: Yeah. And so it does it, you know, sometimes it takes what it takes and uh, um, you know, and, and that's kind of, again, why I look at Mark is that, you know, I mean, we're all going to die. You know, he obviously died younger than he should have. Um, he did live longer than he should have probably be with your assistance. Um <clears throat> and um you know and and but he's also this guy did not die in vain
1: right you know? it i like that because i'm i'm not a big i know people make mistakes and bad things happen but i hate to see it as a waste you know uh-huh. i mean even in, if you look at incarceration i get it you know some people have to be separated from other people because they're dangerous and some people have to have consequences and all that but it still seems like a waste of time and and people you know there's just something i don't know the process isn't great so it's like here here mark is with all this and i didn't i didn't have the foresight to think that oh it's going to turn into this thing it'll just be a valuable tool for people and that's not how i was thinking at all but i I just didn't like the fact that all this time is spent and even if you didn't care about people you just looked at it from a money standpoint Uh trying to fix the problem is, would save you money. Um, One of the things I talk about when I speak is that Malcolm Gladwell, the author, um, he wrote Blink and The Tipping Point and some things, kind of a social economist. He did an article on on a guy called Million Dollar Murray. Uh, I think he was in Seattle. and He had used up a million dollars of resources, you know, going in and out of hospitals. And he actually would, get well enough to where he got a job a place to live and everything and then he relapsed and it all do it all over again Uh well so he started studying how much money is spent on people with these issues and he found out in new york city 81 million dollars went to 2500 people Uh and he said if you gave every single one of those people a full-time aid of this of this of this you'd have millions left over Uh not not that that's the right approach—is just to give it all away. I know that brings up all kinds of political issues, but the idea that the money is not being used the right way—you right. know—that that there's there's money there, but you got to find the right way to allocate it.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, hey, I want to thank you for doing this, man. Is sure. I, I want to ask you really quick—is um, there something I haven't brought up that you want to want to say?
1: You know, if you look at rehabilitation for someone like Mark, one of his biggest challenges is. He never really got habilitated. Like, it's not, you know, sometimes people when they have these problems and they go back to, okay, I know what it's like to have a job or have a regular relationship before this got bad. Right. He never quite got there because of his early usage. He, I mean, he was like the perfect blueprint to have these kind of problems from, you know, genetic predisposition. He's got a bunch of family members that struggle with the same thing. Um, the environment, his um, step for their birth dad leaves. So he's, right away so he's got that problem um 10 years old his stepdad you know drinks himself to death then he's stealing valium from you know back in his mom's purse um then he starts drinking then he has the accident and then he's you know just habitually tr- repeating the same behavior doesn't really learn anything new and so every one of those things just puts another thread till you got this fabric you know because a lot of people were like why do you think it was so bad for him or this or that? I'm like, you just keep, adding, and you never know when you're going to be that person because a lot of people right. sort of roll the dice with that. And you, you know, Nancy Reagan had her just say no thing, but there's some merit to that for, for starting out but before you even ever go there. You know, in um, they have, you know, drug education stuff for kids. They're always talking about the horrors of stuff. But part of the problem is the, the pleasure of the problem is do you really want that monkey on your back of doing heroin when you're 14 and you don't want to do your homework? The rest of your life, you're going to be comparing doing something that's kind of hard with, I could always do this.
2: Uh-huh.
1: And that's almost more terrifying to me than, you know, so you never know if it's going to work with you in that way. Some people could drink and they have zero issues, you know, and other people, I, you know, they use the disease model. I like the allergy where you know, you eat a peanut. If you got a, if you're allergic to that peanut, it'll mess with your breathing. You might die.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, you drink alcohol, it's going to mess with a different organ, but it's your brain and it's going to change the way you think and all that other stuff, but you're still having a reaction to an outside substance. Mm-hmm. It's not like, because some people, when you bring up, like, compared to cancer, some may have issues because people don't ask for cancer they don't willingly do that. Whereas that, you know, some of the drinks has to actually drink. Well, but if your brain that's affected, so therefore, your decision to take that drink is really kind of messed up, you know. So it's really, it's fascinating, all those little uh, nuances to it. But yeah, there's yeah, a lot so. of, uh,
0: you know, with, uh, you know, there's like one theory that, you know, we have, you know, people that have a drug or alcohol dependency have a reward deficiency, you know, like a reward deficiency syndrome, you know, the pleasure Um, you know, part in the mid part of the brain, which is the survival part of the brain. And, uh, you know, when something feels good, we naturally want to continue doing it. Um, And so, yeah, it always comes to the question of why can some people do it and then stop and other people do it and are unable to stop. Um, You know, Mark, I, I was thinking about that with him. And as you were kind of saying that, that car accident, you know, how much brain damage did that cause? Right. Um, and I guarantee it definitely had, you know, a traumatic experience.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and there's so many things that we don't know, like you said, why can some people do it and some people not? I mean, when there's, you know, nature versus nurture and when both components are at play,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, you don't know there's so many little things that, that can change the course of the way a person thinks and, and snowball into something to where they are able to make that decision. I'm going to do this. And their brain's just at the right point where it's giving enough, enough of whatever to where they don't feel the craving as a strong in that moment. Right. So they go to a meeting and then, uh, I mean, it's so it's, you know, you always got to give it a shot. Yep. It was, you know, there's, it's, that's sort of the, the testimony there is it? Yeah. I
0: mean, if you're, de- you know, if you're living in a household where, you know, your parents are an alcoholic or an addict, and then you're watching them, <laughs> you know, solve yeah. all their problems in life by drinking or using drugs, uh, that's, you know, can be some bad lessons for your child.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and there's a lot of uh, bad education in terms of marketing and, and drinking and the social acceptance like you talked I mean, I, when I would have people in jail would come in for Trunk and Public that don't have any kind of, you know, arrest background or you know, like that, they're standing there with, and I hand them a blanket and they're standing at the open cell door and they're looking at the bars like, what? Mm-hmm. And I kind of go, yeah, those, uh, all those, you know, Coors Light commercials where they show all the sexy girls and stuff. They're not here. And um, <laughs> <laughs> this is the part of the commercial they kind of left off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I mean... You know, that that job when done right. And when you, you know, at a certain point, you have a certain group of people that can do that kind of work. Um, But I think to do it well, you have to really put in some extra effort because you have sort of the system sort of working against you. There's a a difficulty in dealing with the constant negativity. Um, I looked at that as a challenge. I liked it, have people be, if they were upset when they came in, to have them thanking me or happy or something different on the way out. Mm-hmm. Um, and the people really, if you spend some time with them and listen and stuff, you, I mean, it's amazing how, how smooth that process can be. Right. I mean, I, I booked 50,000 people, no, a hundred thousand people in my career. I was directly involved with 50,000 and I don't have a single complaint and part of that's luck. And so, you know, cause sometimes people complain and nothing happened. Um, right. But still, it, it's I really worked hard on doing it in a specific way, right. um, and it and it I got lucky with a few things and th- realized oh, this works better than this and that, and um, you know it's it was really neat. You got a really great opportunity for the right person at the right time to make it because no one goes to jail expecting to get help. Right? You, know, you go to your therapist or your doctor that you're going there to get help. You go to jail and someone says, hey, dude, how can, I help, how can I help you not come back here? How are you doing? And they're like, I mean, they just don't expect it. They have all this negative self-talk and all this everything. And, you know, I had guys come in from back from, you know, parolees that re- violate and be like, what are you done here? And I'm like, well, aren't I supposed to ask you that, you know? And then, well, yeah. And I go, um, aren't you glad I'm here? And they're like, well, yeah. I'm like, well, that's why I'm here, you know?
0: <laughs> well, you treat them like they're human versus prisoners
1: yeah you know. yeah i mean i mean because they are it's, I, i'm a big facts person it's still a person right i mean e- even if you were just you know interested in self-preservation because tr- if you treat people with respect it's you have a better chances of them you know i didn't have to worry about going to home depot and getting a pipe in the back of the head because i booked some guy and was a jerk to him you know mm. that was never my concern in fact it was the opposite you know, I, I, ran to more people outside that were totally cool or thankful or nice or reasonable, or even just neutral, which is fine. Mm-hmm. So, um, there was evidence for this works, you know? Um, yeah. so yeah, it's, it's, it, it was pretty neat. Um, and I didn't expect it to be, I really, I didn't, I didn't really have a whole lot of idea what it was. So I was young. I just was looking for a full-time job and the teaching thing didn't work out. Mm-hmm. Um, but i i miss it i mean i miss this job i have now has a lot of elements of that so that works but i you know i had this when i left i'm like like the kind of like the the guys that come in all the time you know i'm like i'm not gonna be here and i'm like i know even on days off people would ask hey you know where's Sperling or whatever um now i'm like gone for good Mm -hmm. you know i was just like you know tend to think of yourself maybe having a little more importance than you actually do and that was made very clear to me when I went to this training class toward the end of my career where these guys like, you know, we all think we are we can't be replaced and what are we going to do when we retire and all this stuff? Because I tell you what, you know, there's cake in the lunchroom at two. Like, <laughs> and I was like, okay. <laughs> that, that's got a good point there. You know, the world's going to keep going on without you and you better get used to this new way of, you know, looking at things. So, but I do know that, you know, when I first started there, I want to say there was 30 plus complaints, you know, a couple of years later, 18, six, and people gave me grief for doing things. Oh, you, you know, you talk to these guys too much. You you know, you listen to their problems too much. You do, you know, it's always just chipping away and saying something. Oh. Um, but over time, they saw it working and I'm not saying everybody adopted it, but they certainly tolerated it. Right. And it, it just you know, it made sense. So that was kind of neat to see that sort of shift. I kind of equated to like the shark. It's got that fish that gets to hang out in his mouth because he serves a purpose. Right, right. I found a place to find my niche and serve a purpose without that thing just eating me.
2: Yeah.
1: Because typically the way I did things gets, you know, you kind of get run out of there fairly quickly. Well, it's you- not that everyone was these barbarians. It's just, it's a pretty rough job. You don't, you don't get thanked by anybody except for you know, maybe the person, person you're booking, which they they're, they don't have any value. The person them go going up to the front desk and, and saying something positive about what just happened, they look at that as like, oh, you're just trying to schmooze us, or they they've got you in a certain category. Right. So that person's that's a voice that's not heard. And if you prevent any problems by doing things the right way, it's a non-event. You know, it's like, yeah, I, I decided to put this guy in the interview room here and talk to him for a little bit instead of putting him back in a cell where he could have hung himself. And you're, what I get out of it is, oh, you let these guys talk too much.
0: You know, it's that rapport building, you know, yeah. um, You know, it's what I teach very prominently within the school is, is, you know, report, you know, once you build a rapport with somebody, you can say anything you want to them, you know, and you can't. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And that's the thing. That's a problem sometimes too, is people don't know how to deliver bad news at this guy. Oh, by the way, you have a roll hold or you have a, you know, a warrant and you're not getting out when you thought you just made your phone call and told them that you'd be home and whatever, or, and they, sometimes it gets fudged a little bit. And it's like, I found that if you deliver the truth and you're truly sincere, that people can take it. They don't like it, but they're not going to think it's your fault or something. Right. Um, and a, a lot of that is like what you just said, because there's some established report because I took a little bit of time. Yep.
0: So I always like to ask people at the end of this, um, if you were to say anything to those people out there struggling, what would you tell them?
1: I, I'd say like the same thing that I, I might, you know, mention to someone that's, you know, dealing with some real clinical depression and that's, um, what you see now and, like things don't seem like they're worth it or why put in the effort to try to get clean or to, you know, make it another day. Um, It's like a a tunnel. It's like a a pipe that you're looking down that has a turn in the the lights over here, but you can only see straight ahead and it's black. So you think it's not worth doing the effort. I've tried it 10 times. It didn't work out and all that, that as you go down this pipe and keep trying or get moving, you're eventually going to see the light and something can click. Um, you know, because it's in the it's just worth it too, because that's the other thing is that people don't usually put any effort into protecting, salvaging, saving, keeping, whatever you want to call it, if they don't see any value in it. Mm-hmm. And you know, in my experience, when I've talked to people who are kind of in, in that state of despair, I'd say, you know, if you disappeared, would anyone notice? And a lot of times they say no. And I'm like, you don't, how do you, okay. But how do you, how do you know that? Mm-hmm. You don't get to know what everybody else is thinking. You know, you, mm-hmm. the littlest thing, there's like that documentary, the bridge, have you ever seen it? Yeah. So this guy who put a note on his fridge and said, I'm going to um, take the bus to the Golden Gate Bridge. It's like 20 minutes away. And if, and if one person says hi to me, I won't jump. Mm-hmm. And he jumps. And he, as he goes over, he obviously lives. Cause as he goes over the railing, he said he realizes <laughs> I made a mistake, which is kind of funny the way he tells it. But he, you know, horrible injuries, but he goes around and talks about it. And what I took from it was it's all it would have taken someone to say hi. So, this person that's struggling with trying to get clean, thinking they don't have any value and they're not worth putting the effort into get clean, you could do something like that, like say hi to somebody. And it can make a massive life-changing impact and you'll never get to know about it. Uh-huh. So you don't really get to be the person that decides your value. So logically the conclusion is you have value. You're worth it. Yeah, you know? Absolutely. I guess if I were to shrink that all thing down, I'd say you're worth it. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I
0: like what you said too, in the sense that, you know, like how you feel today or how your world is today does not necessarily mean it's going to be like this tomorrow. Totally you know? So, yeah. Hey, I want to thank you for doing sure. this. I really appreciate this. Um, you know, I really appreciate the work you did. This is, you know, uh, drunken public's an amazing documentary. Hey, I want to thank everybody for tuning into another episode of high wall clean. And as I always like to say, keep getting high, but let's do a clean. I'll see you soon. Thanks.